All right, I got a, gray, a red light on here and I have time ticking. So I'm gonna assume that this is recording. Um, just a little housekeeping stuff because this is an audio recording and I may put it on iTunes and I want uh, people to know what it is. Um, this is um, Abnormal Psychology here at the Gettysburg campus of Harrisburg Area Community College. We call it Abnormal Psych, Psych 213. So today we're gonna talk about um, really views of abnormal behavior. It's chapter one in our textbook, an introduction, and so that's what we're gonna talk about today. We have about 35 slides, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but I'm, I'm gonna tell you that these first four chapters of this textbook are kind of review of like Psych 101, general psychology or introductory psych, with just kind of a focus on abnormality. So we're gonna go through the first couple chapters on a fairly uh, decent pace, only because hopefully some of it's review. Now, if we run into a concept or a topic that maybe is really foreign, it's way out there, then see me after class, I can get you up to speed and make sure. But if you've had me for Psych 101, for General Psych, I think most of what you're gonna see in here, you've seen before in one way or another. So just letting you know, okay? So let's go ahead and get started. All right, what is normal and what is abnormal? Can you define that? Can anybody give me an, an idea of what normal is or what abnormal would be? Do you know anyone that's normal? Yeah, I'm not normal either. Yeah, I don't know. Like, how do you determine who's normal or what behavior is normal? Um, just some ideas, like, I don't know if I can get this to, it's a PowerPoint. I don't know that I'm supposed to have stuff pop up and I don't know, new technology, I somehow have messed it up. Ah, oh, there we go. I just know how to do it this way. So, is a man kissing another man normal? What about a woman slapping a child? What about a man driving a nail through his hand? Or a woman refusing to eat for several days? Or a man barking like a dog? How about a woman making a shrine and offering to her dead husband? Now some of these seem odd, but can you think of a context where they may be normal? Like a man barking like a dog. Could there be a context when that's a normal occurrence? What if he's a pet lover and he's got three of them? I talk to my dogs. We have good conversations on the porch. How about this one, driving a nail through your hand? Could you think of a context where that could be a normal occurrence or seem normal? What do you think? Trying to get workman's comp. Trying to get what? Workman's comp. <laughs> Trying to get workman's comp, yeah, but would it be normal to do that kind of self-injurious behavior? Yeah. yeah, probably not. What about a religious event? Yeah. You know, I there was a a play they used to do out west. I don't know if they do it anymore. My parents told me about it, never went to it. But they told me about it, it was like a reenactment of the crucifixion, right, in Christianity, and of Jesus. And, and they actually, this play that happened once a year, they would actually go through the motions of nailing a nail to make it so realistic. I know, I'm shaking my head with you like, oh my goodness. So maybe in some kind of religious act that maybe that seems normal. I don't know. You know, so, you know, we have these up here. A man kissing another man. How about time period? If we go back 100 years, does that seem normal? What about today? Was it always normal but just not spoken about? Was it just not society's accepted? So again, society comes into play, time of, you know, a historical time comes into play, the context. So while we like to think it's real easy to, to, to define what's normal and abnormal, it is not as easy as you might think. All right, so what is abnormal psychology? There's a good question. Well, here we go. Abnormal psychology is the scientific study of objectives or whose objectives. You know what, I'm not gonna like, I'm gonna have to take some of this stuff out of my PowerPoint because it doesn't come up the way I want it to, right? But here it is, right? Abnormal psychology is the scientific study 
whose objectives are to describe, explain, predict, and control behaviors that are considered strange or unusual. So we're going to try to describe behaviors that seem strange or unusual. Now that might mean by social context, or it might be by historical period, or it might be by someone's judgment, whether it's strange or unusual, but that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to explain it. Why is the behavior happening? We're going to try to predict it in some way. And of course, we're going to try to control it, especially if it's a bad behavior that harms the person. So that's what we're going to try to do. All right? See, I built all these cool things into PowerPoint, and now that technology has passed me, I need to go edit some more. So what are these behaviors? Well, believe it or not, oh, there we go, it went too far. Believe it or not, these behaviors can range from the bizarre and the extreme to the more unsensational and prevalent. And what do I mean by that? The bizarre and extreme. Maybe you've read a story, like in the past somewhere, where someone with schizophrenia in New York City is standing on a subway platform. And they believe that the person beside them is a devil sent to kill them. And so they shove them in front of the oncoming car and they kill them. That's the sensational. But the more prevalent is, what about the elderly person who's got a substance abuse problem, drinks a bottle of vodka every night because they don't have anything else in their life and they suffer by themselves at home? Believe it or not, that's probably more prevalent than the person that throws someone in front of an oncoming subway car. But you're not going to hear about the elderly person struggling with substance abuse or dementia. How many elderly people do we have suffering from dementia right now? which is a mental health concern. So again, this is some of the stuff we have to think about, right? All right, so what is abnormal behavior? So abnormal psychology is a study, right, of these things with the goal to try to describe and predict. So what is abnormal behavior? Well, abnormal behavior usually includes the following three characteristics. Number one, it's culturally inappropriate. It doesn't fit the culture the person lives in. Hearing voices, believing that God is talking to you, in some contexts, that is actually something good. We would, we would actually make you important within the society or the group. We go, oh, you are a shaman. And yet, in downtown Gettysburg, we might say, there's an issue there, right? Because in that context, it's not. So it's got to be culturally inappropriate. We've got to measure, is it okay within the culture? Number two, it's got to be accompanied by subjective distress, which sounds easy, but not everyone who suffers from abnormal behavior or mental illness, not every single person suffers. It's all in the perception. They might not think they have a problem. And then it involves some psychological disability or impairment. So it's got to cause some kind of impairment that keeps you from doing what you should be able to do. So let's talk about cultural inappropriateness. All right? As you notice, my PowerPoints violate all the rules of PowerPoints, way too much information on each slide. But hopefully that helps you with your note taking. It helps me anyway. So it's here. So what do we see? Well, we see here the behavior seems odd um, or at odds with cultural expectations. So you expect certain things, but this behavior keeps the person from doing that. The behavior may, uh, may be seen by others as being disturbing or puzzling or irrational. And notice it says both the behavior itself and the context it's displayed in is important. Like those examples that popped up. A man kissing another man, a, a woman slapping a child, a, a person having a nail driven through their hand. The context, not just the behavior, is going to be important to determine whether that is a normal thing or not. Ruth Benedict studied the Dubai, or it's Dubai, I believe, or Dubu society, right? 
And what Ruth found was that um, the society characterized by a degree of suspiciousness and mistrust. So that society has a lot of mistrust and suspiciousness, very private society. And actually, if we were to have that level of paranoia um, or that level of distrust in the United States, we'd probably call them paranoid. Yet in their culture, in their setting, it seems normal. So cultural beliefs really influence how appropriate or inappropriate things are. Go over to the Middle East, right? You have people with burqas, they've got half their face covered. We, in the United States, may go, that's odd. Why would you not, it's kind of scary to us. Why would you not show your face? What do you have to quote unquote hide? But in their culture, it's normal. It seems odd not to do it. So again, we have to pay attention to culture. It's gonna be very important, right? Cultural relativity. When we talk about culture, we've got to realize that every culture kind of is, is relative. That means that the perspectives that highlight different cultures may actually use different standards in the definition of abnormality. What one culture considers normal, another culture might say, oh, that's not normal at all. So it's relative to the culture. That makes defining abnormality difficult. Because you're acting strange here in the United States, let me use this as a very radical example. Maybe you have pedophilic desires. You want to um, have, you know, have sex with uh, children. In, in our culture, we go, hell no, get the hell out of here, no way. But maybe you could find a culture, subculture somewhere, where that's okay. There are countries, unfortunately, in this world where people can actually vacation to find partners that are what we would consider here in the United States underage. It's scary, you know, from our perspective. It should be scary from theirs. But it's, I guess, if you want to try to find it, what I'm trying to say is if you frighten the right culture, maybe whatever it is that you do that's strange is normal. So we have to kind of be careful. It says the judgment of another person's normality will depend on the values and traditions in which the culture that he or she lives. Um, believe it or not, Nazi Germany, some engaged in the behaviors that were not culturally appropriate, but they didn't have abnormal functioning. They turned in their neighbors when they knew they were going to be taken away, but they didn't do it because they were abnormal. That seemed to be what you did. Even though by today's standards we stand out, you know, we armchair quarterback and we, we kind of look at it from the distance and we go, wow, I can't believe anybody did that. Well, guess what? If you were living in Germany at the time, you may have. And not because there was something wrong with you, but, but because that's what you did. It seemed the norm, good or bad. So what are the limitations to this cultural inappropriateness? Um, in the determination of abnormality? Well, I think you guys can figure that out. You, you guys are smart, right? At times, the act, um, to act in a manner that does not reflect the prevailing culture may, may, may not necessarily be viewed as abnormal. You know, there's some of the greatest inventions on the planet have happened because someone decided to be different than everyone else. The Wright brothers decided they wanted to go to the skies. Ford decided he thought we should move faster than walking or by horse. By today's standards, they, or back then, they were odd. By today's standards, we wouldn't be where we're at today if it wasn't for the, the risks they took to be different. Does that kind of make sense? Martin Luther King. You know, think about the Civil Rights Movement, all the people who stood up for, really, stood up against the culture at the time for what they believed was right, and ultimately it was right. So, you know, that's one of the things we have to see. Overt behavior may not be culturally inappropriate per se, but the person might still be abnormal. So maybe what they're doing is not abnormal. You know, everything they're doing seems fine, but they still seem odd. I'm complying with all the rules of society, but I'm still not quote unquote normal, whatever the hell that is. And maybe some cultural inappropriate behaviors are more accurately defined as criminal. 
So maybe if someone's really breaking the cultural standards, it's not that they're abnormal, they're just criminal. And that's a different issue. You can be normal, you can be sane, you can be logical thinking and be criminal and just not care. So, something to think about. Subjective distress, let's talk about this one. Remember, there's three altogether. This is the second one. Subjective distress refers to the negative internal emotions or experiences which are real to the person. You might not understand them, but they're real to them. Someone who has a favorite pair of flip-flops and they can't go to school without their favorite pair of flip-flops on. They can't take a test with that. And we look at that and we go, that is so odd. I guarantee you, you do some stuff that's odd too. But does that cause them, does that distress? How distressful is it to them? You know? Notice it says, sometimes that distress can't be observed by others. Sometimes we don't know how people are suffering underneath the surface. And subjective distress can include all these. So it could be unhappiness, it could be fear, apathy, guilt. It could be visual or auditory experiences that seem odd, that are distressing to the person. It could be physical aches and pains. I share this, you know, if you're a student of mine, you've, you've heard my... <laughs> I, hopefully you don't mind that I use myself as examples many times, but you know, um, subjective distress. I got two bad knees. I know they need replaced. I'm trying my best to avoid the surgery for as long as possible because being a big guy, I will wear those knees out in no time. They figure about 10 years. So I deal with knee pain every single day. I wake up, I'm slow. I look like I'm 90 years old, like climbing through the house in the morning because they just, they lock up every once in a while. But I'm just trying to make it through the irritation and, the, and all that just a little longer, right? Conversation with my doctor says, if I can make it to 60, then there's a much better outcome on the knee surgery, believe it or not. You, you form less scar tissue. They last, if they only last 10 years, that means I just have to have one more surgery before 80 not multiple. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid as much surgery as possible here. And this is the surgeon telling me I'm going to trust his instincts. Just saying. But again, I'm putting up with stuff that may be physical aches and pains that would be considered subjective distress, but I wouldn't call that abnormal. It's just getting old. Wearing them out. So there's always exceptions, too, also. I mean, think about mania. Someone with mania, are they going to complain about the fact that they have unlimited energy? That they are bouncing off the walls from topic to topic. They start a thousand different projects. They complaining? No, it's not until they can't finish them all and the depression sets in that it becomes a problem. So again, you know, that's one of the things that we see. Um, a story that I use, I'll try to fit it in here. I worked with a guy in prison, and he was in, if you've had me before, you've heard this story, so I, I'm sorry that I, I kind of bore you with the story, but I, I stick with the truth because it's so much easier. So I saw this guy in prison, he was in for stealing cars, and he was doing a, you know, I think it was something like a three and a half to seven year sentence for stealing cars, I think that's what it was. And he came into my office and at the time that I worked in the prison, I did psychological reports for parole. I did a little bit of everything, but that's one of my jobs. So people would come in, they would sit down in my office prior to going up in front of the parole board and they would, I would ask them questions to see if they showed remorse, to see if they showed growth, to see if they were a risk for reoffending. Now, I'm not saying that psychologists are the best predictors, but that was the goal, right? So this guy came in. And I'm going to try to paraphrase this story. I can go pull the police reports. I have access to all that as a, you know, an employee. And it's all criminal justice, so it's all, you know, it's all part of the court records. So I can pull that. But instead, I'd like to have the person come in, tell me their story, then go look at the records and see if they accurately described what went on. Because I can always call them back into my office and say, hey, you said this, but the police report said this. What's the deal? to see if they own responsibility, right? So this guy comes in, and I said, so what happened? He's like, ugh, what a load of crap. 
And I'm going to keep this clean. Guarantee you he didn't use some of these words. Just saying. Right? He said, what a load of crap. I'm on probation for some trumped up drug charge, which means that every week I have to go and piss in a cup for a probation officer and I got to pay him $25 for what? To prove I'm not using? I'm on probation. My probation officer can show up to work whenever he wants to. So I can't get a great job because nobody wants to hire somebody on probation. I'm living in this dump. I don't have any money. And I got this piece of crap car and I'm driving to work and my car breaks down. And my probation officer said if I miss one more day of work, he's going to throw me back in jail. So I stole a car to go to work. Oh. I said, oh, okay. I said you were just driving along and there was just a car sitting. No. My car broke down. I had to walk a little bit. There was a mall. I walked in. I took a car. I said it was just sitting there with the keys in. No. I waited for someone to come out. I took their keys. I said, do you have a weapon? I didn't need a weapon. I didn't have a weapon. But he was killed. I'm like, okay. Because I took a car and I left. Hmm. Okay. So I go pull the police report. They found his abandoned car was disabled, not fall from this mall parking lot. He walked in, he waited for an elderly woman with her arms full of packages to come out of the mall. He hit her a couple times, yanked the keys out of her hand, and in driving out of the spot, ran her over. She was in the hospital for three months. She didn't die. She had insurance, why'd she jump in front of the car? I mean, just let me take it. And I said, well, what were we gonna do after you stole the car? Drive it back to the mall and drop it off, give the keys back to her and say, thanks for letting me borrow it? I mean, but he's not feeling distressed. The only distress he feels is that he's in prison and answering my questions. He's not distressed over what he did. So sometimes subjective distress sounds awesome, but it's just, it's not enough. It's just not, some people just don't get it. They just don't get it. What about psychological disability? This is another one that's part of distress, if you will, right? Or, or maybe the third one. Individuals who are unable to function adequately in their social roles can be considered to have a psychological disability, impairment, or dysfunction. So let's say you're a student and you have social phobia. You do not like to get up in front of groups. You have to take a speech class and every time it comes time for you to give your speech, you miss class. Because the stress is too much for you to deal with. So you can't pass your class and you can't get your degree and you can't get the profession you want. Is that an impairment? How about our guy from the mall parking lot? Is his behavior an impairment? Does it keep him from functioning like a normal human being? You might go, well, what is he suffering from besides being a jerk? Well, in psychological terms, we use the term antisocial. Now, I know you might be saying, well, wait, 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 wait. I've got a friend, right? And I called up the friend and said, let's go out to the clubs this weekend, right? And they said, well, I really don't feel like going. And I said, don't be antisocial. Come join us, right? Stop being a hermit. Well, yeah, I know that's what we say in layperson's terms. But in psychological terms, antisocial means that I don't care about society's rules. I do what I want. I take what I want, and I don't care about the consequences. If we're going to talk about Freud, and some, sometime we will, this semester, we could talk about someone being all id, like a little kid. I want a car, I take it. Get out of my way, I'll run you over, I don't care. The rules don't apply to me. So that's antisocial in psychological terms. Psychological disability can be considered analogous with a physical disability or impairment, so it's almost like a disease that if you don't treat, it's going to get worse. It's the kind of a disease model, if you will, of, of impairment. It's one of the things that we look for. What are the uh, limitations to psychological impairment? Well, guess what? Not everybody displays symptoms of abnormality or abnormal behavior. Not everyone experiences social difficulties. Someone with an eating disorder, do they experience social difficulties? I go, I have dinner with my friends, I go to the bathroom, I puke it all up. Bulimia, am I hurting anyone else? 
I'm still going to dinner with everyone. I'm still hanging out. So again, maybe not everyone suffers from social impairment. That's part of it. And we can go a little step further. Um, sometimes maybe the behavior helps me. Someone who's overly paranoid or, or suspicious, do you think that might actually be beneficial if you were a private investigator? Right? You don't take what anybody says. Hell, your own mother could be the, the culprit. Right? So again, something to think. Now, another way we can look at this is the four Ds. I like the four Ds because I think the four Ds help us. So the four Ds are another way to look at abnormality. And we can define abnormality if you have these four Ds. Number one, if you have a dysfunction, if it's harmful. So says here, I like this quote, so I, I always put it in my PowerPoint. So it says, does the behavior vary from social norms and cause a failure of a mental mechanism to perform a natural function for which it was designed by evolution. You're a mom, just gave birth to your baby, and you're suffering from postpartum depression, and you can't even get up out of bed to feed it. Is it keeping you from fulfilling a natural function that you were built to do by design and evolution? Yeah. Think about that. Someone from the mall parking lot who has no empathy. It's so, so harmful to them to not have that that it keeps them from functioning as a, as a human being with caring feelings. It's kind of interesting. So that's the first D is dysfunction. Is it a dysfunction? Number two D, is the person suffering from distress? It could be yes or no. You don't have to have all the Ds, but are they suffering from distress? If so, then that's more likely an abnormal behavior. It's causing harm to them. At least they perceive that. Maybe they're off, but they're perceiving it that way. Is it deviant? Is it highly unusual? A guy from the mall parking lot, I, you know, I would say that that's highly unusual. Most of us don't just steal cars and run over people. And then the last one, is it dangerous? Does it per the person or others in harm's way? Is it harmful? Does it create personal risk? And even our guy from the mall parking lot, it creates danger to him. What if grandma had been packing? What if she had a handgun in her purse and he went to grab her keys and she said, oh no, you're going down punk, right? It could happen. I've met some grandmas who carry handguns. I'm telling you, here in the United States, careful, grandma will kick your butt too. Just saying. So again, is it harmful? So the four Ds, do you have the four Ds? Or at least three of the four? Mm, that's speaking something right there. So we kind of like that. That's a good perspective. Yes? No. For you to be diagnosed with something, no. In fact, part of it is from the person's perspective, do they believe that it's abnormal? From society's perspective, do they believe it's abnormal? And from a professional's perspective who's trained in diagnosing abnormality, do they believe it's harmful? So again, if, it's almost like you can't just look from, uh, at something from one view, from all three. The person could say, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. The other two say, oh no, that's problematic. Maybe they're just not aware. The professional by himself, if society says it's okay and the person says it's okay, does that trump the professional's opinion? I worked with a psychiatrist who said that anyone that gets excessive piercings and tattoos is histrionic in their personality. They have a flaw. You know what I found? And this is my argument to them. Have you ever gone to the subculture of people who believe that body modification and adornment are a natural expression of their inner selves? What the hell's wrong with that? Who are you to judge? So we can't just say one, but two out of three, kind of like Meatloaf says, ain't bad. All right? So two out of three maybe ain't bad, or three out of four is not too bad. Again, the more data, the more evidence, the more support that you show, the more confident you can feel in saying this is abnormal or this is not. 
Does that help answer the question? So yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. But you don't have to have all of them, but it's a, a, a more refined way than just going, you know, subjective distress or it's culturally inappropriate. So we're trying to hone in on a best way to do it. All right. So another way we can look at abnormality is that it's some kind of continuum. That all behavior is on a continuum. And that extreme or abnormality is at one end or the other, right? Or could say that it's completely at one end. Now, I, I believe that if you use a continuum model, you almost have to say that abnormality is at both ends. Think about someone who is, think about extroversion, outgoingness. If you have someone that is so outgoing, they spill their guts to every stranger they meet. The nitty gritty details about their sex life or their, their illnesses or whatever, that's a little too open. Would you agree? That's problematic. That's a hindrance to their function. But I would also go the opposite direction, that if you're so closed, you are so low in extroversion that you never connect with anyone, you're so lone and private, you never share your thoughts, I would say that's just as harmful. So the book talks about being at one end is the abnormality. I believe if you go with a continuum model, you can see abnormality at both ends. Now, suspiciousness or paranoia, you know, maybe that's only at one end. Oh, I'm not suspicious at all. Oh my goodness, I'm suspicious of everything. Yeah, that makes sense. Something like extroversion, maybe both ends have a little abnormality. But the, the idea is that it's a continuum. The person hearing voices, listening to them, who believes it's God versus the person listening to the voices, believing it's some devil that's trying to, out to get them. Again, um, they're both the same kind of behavior, but what's normal and what isn't? Kind of this idea is that if you want to be Moses, be Moses. Who the hell cares? But you're still responsible as Moses. If you go kill someone, Moses, you're going to pay the price. Make sense? So again, we're trying to hone in, not just arbitrarily, but trying to get better at it. So it says most of us fall in this middle range with only mild to moderate handicaps. Story I use is my CD collection. I was a uh, disc jockey in high school. I, I played. In a, I was a DJ on a radio station um, on the college campus. Um, it didn't be broadcast out into the, the town that the, that the school was in, but at least it was on the college campus, which was really cool. It was a free job. I, I didn't, wasn't paid. Right? But I love music. When I was in high school, I'd help the DJ spin music at the dances. Right? So now I have my own little DJ service on the side. You know, I just, uh, it's all word of mouth. I don't advertise. If I can do the gig, great, awesome. I think I do a pretty good job. But the reason why I'm telling you all that is because I have a CD collection that's quite large, as you can imagine. Um, before I met my wife, it was in my living room. And it was in stacks along the wall. And there are over 1,500 CDs that were lining my wall. It's like a record store. And I put them in alphabetical order, not because I'm necessarily OCD, but when you have 1,500 CDs and you want to play a certain group, you don't want to have to search through 1,500 CDs. <laughs> when trying to narrow the search down to somewhere more specific, right? So maybe your CD collection, your music collection is spread out through the whole back seat of your car, not even in cases, not in covers, just shoved everywhere. Mine was very particular. But if I didn't play any CDs today, I didn't go back and look to see if they got out of order. I lived by myself. I don't need to. I didn't play anything today. I know that the CDs weren't moved. Someone with OCD that's further down the line is constantly worried about whether their collection is in order. And they may have to every day, whether they played music that day or not, go through all 1,500 to make sure not only they're in the right order, but the right CD is in the right case. And they spend hours every day before they go to bed making sure it's all right. It's all a continuum. It's just they're way out here. I might be right here. You may be way down here. 
but it's all just a continuum. So what we believe is that this is arbitrary. How do you decide what's normal and what isn't normal? Well, that's arbitrary decision based on professionals and society at the time, historical period. So it's more of a fluid idea that abnormality really, what we consider abnormal today may not necessarily be considered abnormal on down the line. In psychology in the 1960s, um, 1950s, when the first um, diagnostic uh, manual came out from the American Psychological Association, homosexuality was in the disorder list. If you were homosexual, you were considered abnormal. When edition two came out in 1964, it was removed. It was felt that that was not accurate, that homosexuality is not an abnormal behavior. It's a variation of normal behavior. So it was removed. And people go, well, how can you just arbitrarily remove or put in? Sometimes we get better at diagnosing. Just saying. Right? So that's something to kind of keep in mind. Any questions? We're doing good? Okay. So the currently per or accepted perspective is this continuum model, believe it or not. Um, and it says that there's no clear line between normal and abnormal. It requires subjective decisions about whether a person has a disorder or not. We have to include various viewpoints, and it goes back to what I said to you earlier, that we don't just go by what society says, and we don't just go by what the person says, and we don't just go by what a professional says, but we look from multiple perspectives. Is it odd or abnormal from all of these views? Not just one or at least two of the three, or more than one, if you want to think of it that way. Right? It has to incorporate the four Ds. Distress, dysfunction, danger. Right? So we have to include those. And then acknowledges the influence of context. We've got to make sure that the context of the behavior displayed in, truly it is inappropriate for that context. Again, hearing voices in church is much different than hearing voices in downtown Gettysburg. The other model that used to be in favor was called the discontinuity model. And it says that only that there is a significant line between that which is normal and abnormal. That they shouldn't even be considered a continuum because it is so foreign, it is so different. That's kind of fallen from favor because we see that there's, there's variations. It's not quite as cut and defined as we thought it was. But the discontinuity model says that only extreme terms can be used to identify abnormal behavior. And so we're, we're trying to move away from that. Not saying that abnormal behavior doesn't exist, but we, we have to be a little bit more fluid or flexible in our definitions. Now, not everybody likes that. Just saying. So what is mental health? We're trying to define normality and abnormal. We're trying to define abnormal behavior. What about mental health? Well, here's what we know. People who are in good mental health, people who are functioning well, people who seem to have it all together, share several uh, attributes. They are able to function effectively and find satisfaction in life. That doesn't mean that they don't get sad every once in a while. Being sad is normal. Every single person in this room has been depressed at one time. Have you been clinically depressed? That's a different story. You've found a way to make it through, right? So they have lasting and emotionally gratifying relationships. They feel connection to others, not alone like a lone ship out on the ocean. And they are likely to make realistic appraisal of their own talents and shortcomings. In other words, they're pretty honest about themselves. I mean, how many of you think that you are in perfect ideal mental health in this room? For those of you at home, nobody raised their hand. Not even me, right? None of us are in perfect mental health. We all admit it. Yeah, I kind of do this. Yeah, I kind of do that. But we're honest, at least more honest with ourselves than just ignoring it. Sometimes people who are suffering from mental illness do not realize they are, are suffering. They're not aware of it. 
and that's important. So it says basically good mental health leaves a person open to many alternative ways of behaving. The problem is someone that does not have good mental health is limited in their behavior choices. That person that has to check their CD collection for hours every night is limited. They can't just go and be like everybody else. They can't just go. No, 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 I have a routine I cannot deviate from. Yeah. Um, that just like reminds me, I had a client at True North and um, I, I worked with people with schizophrenia and he like did not think that he was sick. He didn't understand why he was there despite it being a voluntary program. And he would constantly like come to our office and stuff. And one of the things that we tried to do was peer support. And I was I would always suggest him going and talking to his neighbors and stuff. And he would he told me one day, he said, I don't want to talk to them. I want to talk to normal people. And I asked him to leave the office because I told him like not everyone like I said, despite having a mental illness doesn't mean like you're not like I don't know, it just made me upset. Yeah, it made it upset <laughs> you. He didn't understand like that. Like, that, even there's though a, they have an, a mental illness, like, you can still talk to them and stuff, and, like, I don't know. No, no. I think it's good, and, and I'm going to run with your story a little bit further. When I worked in Camp Hill Prison, you know, here in Pennsylvania, um, I worked with the mentally ill, and I worked with people who were schizophrenic, and I'd have people going in, coming in and going, they labeled me a schizophrenic, what does that mean? And I literally would pull out my abnormal psychology book and say, here's the chapter on schizophrenia. Let's talk after you've read it. so that they could see what does that diagnosis mean. Now we can talk about it. Now, of course, they would argue. Yeah. But then we would talk about what, what, you know, again, what is normal, what isn't. Does this keep you? Has your behavior led you to jail? Yes. <laughs> Most people's behavior don't lead them to jail. So let's talk a little further. Do you see? But again, they're, they're, they don't know it. They're limited in their behavior choices. They can't do anything else. They, they don't have the flexibility of a good functioning individual. And I don't like that term good, but that's what we have here. So we'll run with that. All right. So what name should we call it? You know, what, how do we call this behavior that seems abnormal? Well, we can use the term psychopathology. If you hear someone say, what is your psychopathology? They're just asking, what is your mental illness? Just another way of saying the same thing. Uh, mental illness, we could call it a behavior disorder. Nice way of saying someone is mentally ill. Sometimes we're trying to move away from illness. Illness sound, has kind of a negative connotation, so we talk about struggles. You know, maybe you have some cognitive struggles. Right? Some emotional disturbance. You have some kind of emotional disturbance. But they're all, you know, again, various terms that we've used. And they mean slightly different things. And then you might have heard sociopath or psychopath. These are older terms we've used in the past. I think we've tried to hone in on trying to label things a little bit better. There's some problems with labeling. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but just letting you know. So there's this tendency for any term used in reference to these phenomenon to eventually get a derogatory meaning. We used to use the term mental retardation uh, for individuals who had low IQ. But then that term has been bastardized, hasn't it? Because people truncate the word retardation and then start labeling people and calling them bad, you know, derogatory names. And so now we've changed the terminology so that we can have a more positive view of what we're talking about. We don't say, we say intellectual you know, challenge. Right? So we try to find a different term that, because eventually the terms get, I don't know, abused. And then people get abused. And we don't want to do that. That's not our goal. So that's one of the things that we see. Notice it says mental disorders are easier to label or explain and understand. We, we do know that some disorders are much easier to label and understand. Um, and there are some videos built into this PowerPoint. So here's what I'm going to tell you, right? Um, because I'm recording this, I'm not going to record the video. And, and we have limited time together. I only get an hour and 15 minutes with you twice a week. 
What I'm going to do is focus on getting through the PowerPoint with you. And then there are little videos. If you pull the PowerPoint up later on, you know, from your class shell, then you can click on those videos and you can see them. All right? Um, so just to let you know, um, this video is by Natalie Boyd. Um, and it's a video on really the terminology we use with um, abnormality. And if you're listening at home, um, do a quick search on YouTube and you might find that Natalie Boyd video. So some of these are linked to YouTube, some of these are linked specifically to the publisher and so there's copyright issues and I don't, I'm not going to violate those. But I would encourage you because it gives you another, like people talking about, what are we talking about when we say abnormality? Um, and they're short videos. I think at the most, the longest one's like five minutes, maybe. So again, they're short, straightforward videos I think you'll like. All right. So, um, sociopolitical concerns. Believe it or not, not everybody jumps on the let's label it bandwagon. And you can understand why. You know, I call you schizophrenic, and now everyone looks at you because we called you schizophrenic and thinks there's something wrong with you. Maybe my label's wrong. So, there's a guy named Thomas Saws. He passed away not too long ago. Um, but he was a real opponent to labeling behavior. He is noted for his quote that mental illness is a myth. Mental illness doesn't exist. He believes in the continuum model and he says people just have uh, problems with living. You think that you're Moses, you just have problems with living. You'd rather be Moses and be yourself. Okay. But again, you still have responsibility. Make sense? So people just struggle. Someone who's hearing voices has problems with living and so they try to escape reality in their own way. And he doesn't like that term illness. And in fact, he can go back in history and show you how we've used terminology to control groups of people. Back in uh, ancient days, well I won't say ancient days, but about two, three hundred years ago, in the time of slavery here in the United States, they actually came up with a term called drapeomania. Drapeomania is the uncontrollable urge to run. So slaves that would run away from their plantation owners to try to get free were labeled as being mentally ill and suffering from drapeomania. Now I don't know about you, but if I've got a pair of tennis shoes, so screw that. If I have feet and I can run and I'm a slave, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. I'm going to try to get to my freedom. That's what we do. But we call them mentally ill and label them to put our thumb over it. Think about the kid who's labeled as ADHD and we put them on meds because they won't sit still in class. Do we do this? Yep. A few elections ago here in the United States, Howard Dean was a young candidate. I believe he was in his 40s. He was very exciting, exhilarating in his, uh, you know, his presentations. He was running for president. Um, he had a big following in the 20 to 30 year old range. A lot of young folk were behind him. He was so excited. At one of his rallies, he was, he was so excited. He, he had his fists up in the air and he went, yeah! And the news media got a hold of that clip, that three second clip of him going, yeah, because he was so excited. And they said, Howard Dean is mentally ill. He's losing it. He is not fit to be a candidate for president. He lost his funding. He had to pull out of the race. Do we do this? So Thomas Sauce says, shame on you. You can't do that. Labels, can't do it. He said, we must be sensitive to individual value systems, society norms and values, and the ramifications. I'll give you another example. In Texas, there was an individual who was on death row for killing someone. They took the case back into the court system to appeal the death penalty. And because this individual was labeled as mentally retarded in school, they said they didn't know, he didn't know right from wrong and therefore could not be executed. And his um, you know, death warrant was overturned. So what do you think that does to all the other court cases in the United States? You, 
There you go, and that's exactly right. It set a precedence. So anyone who had mental retardation label in high school is taking their court, their case back to court to say, you can't hold me responsible. And here's what we know, you ready? Even people with mental retardation, especially in the mild, even in the moderate range, they know the difference between right and wrong, and that's what our legal system's based on. That you choose your behavior based on right and wrong. You know right from wrong. But we have to be careful. So I like Thomas Sawes. I always bring him up in every lecture of abnormality because I want you to know that not everyone agrees. And I think he's, he, he puts a word of caution out there that we have to be careful with the labels we use and how we use them. And what does it mean and what's the end result? So something that I'm just letting you know, something to think about, right? There are ramifications of making bad choices. The DSM-5. So how do we diagnose uh, mental disorders? Well, we use the DSM. The DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's a mental, uh, it says that a mental disorder is clinically significant syndrome reflecting a dysfunction in psychological, biological, or developmental processes. This is their definition. It's put up by the American Psychiatric Association, or Psychological Association. Um, the most recent edition, DSM-5, came out in 2013, May of 2013. So it's the system we are operating under right now. So their definition says that, again, it's got to be a dysfunction in psychological, biological, or developmental processes. It's got to be significant. It can't just be a little deviation from the norm. It's got to be significantly different. It's going to involve a disturbance in emotions or cognition, um, significant personal distress, or a disability in important activities. But we still have to be careful, because guess what? Not everyone agrees. Even though we have this diagnostic system, there's still a little bit of subjectivity in it. And I've seen psychiatrists battle over diagnoses. When I worked in the prison, I worked on a unit um, of the, I'll say it this way, the worst of the worst. There are inmates that couldn't even get along with other inmates in prison. So they beat up their roommates, they beat up officers, they wouldn't listen to the rules, even in jail. I mean, they're already in jail, and now they're not listening further. So they'd be put in a special management unit, right? Special management unit was a unit where you put into that unit for a minimum of two years. You have to work, earn your, your way off of it by good behavior. You're in an individual cell, you have no TV, you can have religious and educational materials, that's it. You get to come out of your cell one hour every 23. You are not in a yard with anybody else because we can't trust you enough to do that, so you're in your own little private caged-in cage, essentially. Well, in that program, that's very hard on you psychologically, that kind of isolation. It just is. So I was the psychology uh, member who would walk down and assess inmates in those programs every, you know, I, at least once a week I had to touch base with every single one. Sometimes it was multiple times a week depending upon you know, how they were. There was one gentleman down there who um, was acting odd um, and two psychiatrists got in a battle over what diagnosis they have. One felt that they had antisocial. Remember our guy from the mall parking lot. Antisocial personalities, um, if you show any weakness to them, they will take advantage of it. It's a game. The world is a game. So, um, the, you know, if you have an antisocial person and you try to play a game with them, uh oh, let me give you a little example to show you. One of the guys I worked with down there, I walked down to a cell, I said, How are you today? And he, um, I'll keep the language clean. I don't want to get a warning on you know, iTunes or whatever. He said, you know, get the hell off my door. Well, if I just go, oh, okay, you know, and I'm all like, then he's just going to push me around the whole time. We're not going to do that, right? So I said, look, I'm the psychologist that's supposed to come down and see you on a regular basis. If you don't tell me how you're doing and you're not honest with me, then that means I have to come down and bother you tomorrow and then the next day. If you tell me that you're fine and everything's cool, then I can go and I don't have to see you until next week. I don't like you and guess what? I know you don't like me and that's cool, but this is my job and I will do it. So, how are you today? And his response was, I'm fine. Thank you. 
see you next week. And I walked away. Now, if the next day I'd come back and said, how are you today, sir? I just violated the agreement I had with him, right? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to get back into the play, right? So that direct kind of, you know, forceful interaction works well with antisocials. It does not work well with borderline personality disorder. They have a history of abandonment. They will collapse under that kind of, you know, firmness. They need more of a nurturing because they have abandonment issues. So I had two psychiatrists battling over this gentleman that was in this program, one saying they were borderline, the other one say they're abnormal, or they're antisocial. Well, you treat both of those differently. So you would think even with this DSM, we're all going to be on the same page. Well, no, there's still some subjective interpretation. But it's better than just randomly labeling things. Again, here's another video for you to watch. This one's called the DSM History or the history of the DSM. So if you search for that, you may find that out there. I'm just letting you know. What is a mental disorder? Well, again, here's how it's laid out in the DSM. The DSM is much like a cookbook. Yes? Um, okay, so you said borderline personality disorder firmness. The person will, like, collapse because mm -hmm. they're in fear of abandonment. Yep. Does that also apply to those who have been diagnosed with Reactive attachment disorder? It depends on which way they are. Reactive attachment disorder children can go one of two ways. They can be like enmeshed or they can be completely isolative one way or another. But it's a reaction to, uh, again, um, abandonment issues that have happened in childhood. So um, every, because we're dealing with children, I'd say it's a little different. Um, but it's still some of the same thing. You want to go for a nurturing time. You realize that they're going to challenge you. And just to let you know, like, care-wise, how different borderline and antisocial personalities are, they developed a unit for borderlines um, at Camp Hill, and the maximum bed size was the maximum in that unit. The maximum number of inmates for one psychologist to take care of was 10. On the unit that I was working with, with antisocials, we had 127. So do the math. There's a lot more needs that go with borderline. So again, you can kind of see how these things come up. Here's how this is. This is just a picture for you to take a look at. The definition of mental disorders, this is from the DSM-5. You can see how it's laid out. It's much like a cookbook. So a mental disorder is a clinically significant syndrome reflecting a dysfunction in psychological, biological, developmental processes, usually involved with A, Disturbance in cognition, emotion regulation, behavior. B, significant personal distress. C, disability in social, occupational, or other important activities. And excluded from these because just because you struggle with things, maybe it's not a mental disorder. Maybe there's something else going on. So maybe it's excluded from the definition if it's expected or culturally approved to a stressor. In other words, the person that breaks down can't go to work, they can't even get out of bed because they just lost a loved one. Uh, oh my goodness, that's grief and bereavement. That's not a mental illness, necessarily. It's a stress reaction. Or it's a deviant political, religious, or sexual behavior. In other words, maybe the reason why I'm doing it is for political reasons. The monk who sets themselves on fire to protest an unfair government. We go, oh, they're suicidal. What? No, they're making a statement. The person who goes on a hunger strike because they feel that they're being treated unfairly. That's much different. There's a purpose behind it, if you will. Or that it's conflicts are primarily between the individual and society. Sometimes it's just that person just can't adjust. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. They're just odd or different. Well, okay, so again, that's excluded. That's just a person's issues. Maybe they just need to change their thinking. That's not a mental illness. You know. So again, this is just kind of how it's laid out, just so you can see it. How uh, prevalent is mental illness in society? Well, here's what we know. Most common mental illness is anxiety disorders, right? If you take a look here, the percentage of the population, this is over a 12-month period or over lifetime prevalence, um, if you take a look, lifetime prevalence, that at some point during your life you are going to show symptoms that could be labeled as mental illness, guess what? According to this uh, study, about 
of people who at some point have met the criteria at least once in your life that you were struggling. Now keep in mind, I'll give you an example. Depression, the definition for depression, major depression is that the person feels hopeless or helpless every day or almost every day for at least two weeks. And then they have a bunch of other signs. So, you know, a lot of people felt depressed. Maybe on the verge of clinical depression, but then it lifts and it moves on and so, you know, it happened, but that was a long time ago. If we take a look at substance abuse disorders, lifetime prevalence of that is 15%. Um, I don't know. I think it might be a little higher than that now, but I'm just going to say that. Impulse control disorder, about 25%. I think that's closely related to substance abuse, though, so just letting you know. Mood disorders, about 20%, a lifetime prevalence. And anxiety disorders, um, about 28%. So of all of those, 28% anxiety disorders are the biggest one. But when you say any disorder, the fact that someone can suffer from any disorder, you know, one in two about, at least according to this study. So here's what I'm going to do. The rest of this PowerPoint, we have about seven minutes left. Um, you see that, you might look up here and go, wait, you have seven minutes left but 13 slides. Yeah, we won't get through all of it. We'll get through a chunk of it. I'll pause the recording, we'll finish the recording next class, and then we'll start the next chapter. So we're a slight bit off, but as you recall, your quiz for this chapter is due, due tonight by midnight, but it's still available all the way till next week. So we'll get all caught up next week when we get back together. The rest of this PowerPoint and the rest of this chapter, however, is very much from Psych 101, from Introductory Psych. It's the methods we use to research in abnormal psychology. So you've heard these before. So we're going to go as far as we can, um, and then what we'll do is we'll break and we'll catch up from there. All right. So notice it says the primary research approaches to scientifically study abnormal behavior are the case study. Case study is where I, I pick one individual or a group of individuals and I study them in depthly. The problem is that may not apply to everyone. Like I'll give you an example. We could study John Nash. John Nash, a famous uh, mathematician. He actually is a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, won the Nobel Prize for his mathematic formulas in economics. And it's at the heart of economics today. Beautiful Mind was a movie about John Nash. Now, unfortunately, John Nash and his wife were killed in a car accident, so they're, they're not living anymore. But he suffered from schizophrenia, shock treatment, you know, breakdowns. But at the end of his life, he was a college professor teaching and still functioning somehow. Now, we could study John Nash in-depthly, but here's the problem with that. Not all schizophrenics can function as well as John Nash. John Nash, at the end of his life, wasn't taking meds. He was so smart, he knew that he couldn't act out what he was thinking in his head, so he would keep himself under wraps and keep himself under control during the day, and when he would go home at night, he'd let the voices come out and, you know, and let them do, say, or be what they want. He, he could control it, he, he learned how. But not all schizophrenics can do that. And not all schizophrenics are Nobel Prize winners or go to math. So again, we, we have to be careful. We can do an epilogical study, uh, epidemiological study. Epidemiological study is to study groups of people and the prevalence within those groups. We can do correlational and descriptive research and we can do experimental research. These are the big four that we do with abnormal psychology. Let's look a little further at all these. All right, so um, case study, an in-depth study of an individual person or group illustrates abnormal behavior, often very detailed. It can be used to generate theories which we can then test in other ways, which is good, right? But we can't prove anything. We can't say, this is why John Nash became schizophrenic. This is what causes schizophrenia. We can't do that. But we can at least say in this one case, here's what seems to have influenced this person or group. There's selective information is used by both the observer and what the observed displays. In a case study, usually the person knows they're being studied. So I'll let you in as far as I want to, and you'll see what I want to show you. 
So again, it's very selective in what I see. And there's a lack of gener gener uh, generativity to others. We, just because it happens to one person doesn't mean it's true of all. Epidemiological research, this is the study of an incidence or prevalence of a disorder in a population, sometimes called normative research. Maybe we look at public health trends. What is this trend of schizophrenia? What is the trend of autism over the last 10 years? Is autism on the rise or we're just better at diagnosing it? Or have we broadened the category and so now by broadening the category, it now looks like there's more autism or autism spectrum disorders when really it hasn't grown where you've just redefined the category. So again, we have to take a look at it. We use a random sampling. We've got to make sure reliability and validity is, is made sure whatever we're testing or using to test that's reliable, that it's valid for the purpose we're using it. The data collected through this method can provide important information that we can use, right? Um, it can tell us about public health trends and risks in certain populations. So what's the risk in the elderly population of dementia? And are we prepared for the possible epidemic that may ha happen? Again, it gives you an idea. So you can even change public, like the direction of public services and everything. The requirements for any good research project is developing a good definition, doing a random sampling, because you can't just do it, you gotta randomize it so that it's more generalizable to the, the population as a whole. You gotta worry about reliability and validity. Again, these are concepts you probably heard about in Psych 101. I'm not gonna go into depth with them here, but if you wanna know more about them, swing by my office and let's chat. Random sampling, again, participant selection is by chance from a larger group, right? So if I only study people in Pennsylvania, then I can only talk about Pennsylvania. If I only study people in the United States, I can only talk about the United States. So whatever the general population is that I'm pulling from, that sample hopefully is representative of the bigger population. If, for example, in the United States, if I'm just going to throw out numbers. I don't know the numbers accurately, so please don't quote me on any of these. But let's say in the United States, 20% uh, of the United States population is Hispanic. Well, if I randomly sample from the United States, hopefully, if I did it appropriately, I should end up with about 20% of my sample being Hispanic. Make sense? Because I randomly assigned everyone gets a fair opportunity it should turn out pretty close. If so, then I'm real close to the population. I can really generalize my facts. Let's say that the general population, 20%, but I only have 5% in my sample. Now we notice there might be some issues. We've got to take a look at that. Maybe we need a better sample. So just throwing that out there. Um, most, research aims, uh, most research aims at understanding the nature or treatment of disorders. So really when we talk about it in an abnormal psych, we're looking at treatment, we're looking at causes, we're looking at the nature of the disorder and how it affects people. Looking up there. So time-wise, we're kind of out of time. We made it to slide 27. That's pretty good out of 35. I feel pretty good about that. It's the first day of class. We're just getting back into the swing of things, and so that's good. So here's what I want you guys to do. Look over the rest of the PowerPoint. Um, I'm going to pause this recording. Thank you for listening. Hopefully it took right. Um, can't guarantee that, though. We'll see. Thanks. I'll be back. See you next time.